There you go, audio people. Now you know we're recording. So, hey everybody. Today we have Nathan Hirsch on the show. He's an entrepreneur and expert in remote hiring and e-commerce. Uh, he's the co-founder and CEO of FreeUp.com. And it's a marketplace that connects businesses with pre-vetted freelancers in e-commerce, digital marketing, and much more. So Nathan has sold over $30 million online and, and has been on podcasts like Entrepreneur on Fire. Uh, and of course, the Lean Commerce Podcast. Nathan, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. So you have a really neat origin story. Uh, you teased a little bit of it with that idea of starting in your dorm room. Um, but can you tell us you know, how you got to where you are today? Yeah. I mean, growing up, my parents were both teachers and I always had that mentality that I would go to college, maybe get an internship, a job, and then enter the real world, work for 40 years, retire, and that was going to be my life. And <laughs> growing up, I worked summer jobs. I worked 40 hours plus every single week during the summer at errands at Firestone. And I learned a lot about customer service and sales and managing people, but I also just hated it. I hated working <laughs> for other people. I was just watching the clock at all times. And I, I kind of knew that if this was going to be my life, I, I was just going to be miserable. I, I wasn't going to enjoy it. And when I got to college, I looked at it as a ticking clock. I had four years to start a business or else I was going to go into the real world. And that was what I did not want to do. So I started hustling and I used that money that I had made during the summers to buy people's textbooks at the end of every semester and hold on to them, resell them at the beginning of the, of the next semester, competing with my school bookstore. I created a little referral program. People spread the word. And before I knew it, I had lines out the door of people trying to sell me their books to the point where I actually got a cease and desist letter from my college. <laughs> to knock up. So that was kind of my first glimpse into being an entrepreneur. And this was in 2008. So Amazon was bursting onto the scenes. No one really knew what it was. It was mostly a bookstore, just getting into other categories. And all, from selling to all these book distributors, all of a sudden I started to sell more and more on Amazon. And I got familiar with it. I thought it was so cool. I could have my own storefront. It'd be available 24-7. I could apply my customer service skills and respond to emails and get five-star reviews. And it, it was fun. But I just had to figure out what product do I sell because I didn't think I could sell books forever. I was going to graduate at some point. I, I thought we'd all be on Kindles by now anyway, and I didn't think that, that books were the future. So I started doing trial and error. I mean, there were no courses. There are no gurus um, teaching you how to sell on Amazon. And I experimented with outdoor products, video games, computers, and I just failed over and over and over. The only thing I could get to sell were these books. And it wasn't until... I branched out of my comfort zone and got into the baby product industry by accident, by finding these deals online that my Amazon business took off. So if you can imagine me as a 20-year-old single college guy drop shipping baby products out of my <laughs> room, that was me. And people thought I was crazy. No one had any idea what I was doing, but I, I made enough money to quit my internship and start this business. And I, I quickly realized that college kids, not very reliable, no 30 year old person wanted to work for me. So I got thrown into that remote hiring freelancer space. And that's kind of what carried me to free up. Wow. So baby products from the dorm room. That's a, <laughs> it, it's a neat kind of segue into it. And now do you still run the baby products company or have you exited that? So I actually ran it through the beginning of this year um, and free up has just taken off over the past three years. So Connor and I made the decision to focus our sole efforts on that. That's exciting. So let's, let's go ahead and dive into free up and that's free up with three E's, right? Yep. The third E stands for e-commerce. Oh, very cool. So free up is, uh, you know, can you describe what free up is and just walk us through that? Yeah. So as I was hiring freelancers, virtual assistants, uh, I used all the platforms, Upwork, Fiverr, onlinejobs.ph. And you post a job, you get 50 applicants, you interview them one by one, and it just took forever. And I never knew what I was going to get. And even if I hired someone that I liked, if they quit on me, I, I was right back where I started interviewing all these people. So I wanted something faster. And when I couldn't find it, I built it myself. And our concept is we get thousands of applicants every week, freelancers from all over the world, five to $100 an hour, US and non-US, over 80 skill sets. We vet them not just for skill, but for attitude and communication as well. 
let the top 1% in, and then make them available rapid fire to our clients. There's no browsing. They put in requests. We fill them quickly. On the back end, we I'm pretty easy to contact. My calendar is right on the site, but we have people that cover my Skypes, emails, live chat 24-7. So if you have even the smallest issue, we're there to help. And then lastly, we have a no turnover guarantee. We know how frustrating it is when people quit on you. And if while it rarely happens, it is real life, it could. And if they quit on you, we cover replacement costs and get you a new person right away. So that's what we're about, the, the pre-vetting, the speed, the customer service, and the protection. Neat. So are you guys usually working with clients who want a one-off project or a recurring project or a little bit of both? Or who who's the, like, if I have a project, when should I come to free up? Yeah, we work with all different types. We have some e-commerce clients that are big and they have 10 full-time customer service reps in the Philippines and they've had the same freelancers for three years. And, and then we have a client will hire someone to build their Shopify site and then never talk to them again or hire a part-time assistant for 15 hours a week. So you really have that flexibility of as much or as little as you need them. Got it. Now, um, I know that there's, you mentioned Upwork in there, like an Upwork's a pretty large one. So What's kind of the, the big difference? I was trying to just wrap my head around, uh, and it seemed like pre-screening you know, was a pretty substantial difference between FreeUp and Upwork or Fiverr and Upwork, where if I go on Upwork, I, don't, I have to do all the screening myself. It sounds like FreeUp, you guys are taking on some of the screening yourselves, or really a whole lot of it. Yeah, I mean, there, there's pros and cons to everything in life, right? They're pretty large. They have a much bigger database than I do. They, they just went public. But at the same time, we let in one out of every 100 applicants. So you've got that pre-vetting. You've, I would put our customer service against anyone out there. I don't think you're going to talk to the up, to Upwork's owner or CEO. Um, and I would also say we're faster. I mean, we have clients who put in a request and they get started with their freelancer within hours or minutes. So we're pretty quick. And I also have never met a marketplace that has that no turnover guarantee that actually stands by um, people staying around. Yeah, that I, I think absolutely right there. We uh, I have been a fan of, you know, using freelancer marketplaces since like Elance existed and Upwork was Odesk. Um, and so it's, I think it's really just part of the territory uh, to deal with freelancer turnover it's awesome that you guys take it on yourselves to kind of make that easier for clients. Now, one question, let's, let's just flip it and think of it from um, a freelancer perspective. So, you know, who, who are the folks that are coming to you guys? Like, you know, let's imagine I'm hiring uh, for a client or I'm hiring just even for one of my own projects. Uh, you know, who are your freelancers? Who are the folks that are on this marketplace? Yeah, so they come from all over. We we get about three thousand applicants a week to get on our platform, and they're U.S., they're non-U.S., they're in the Philippines and in India. I mean, our, our breakdown is about forty percent U.S., forty percent Philippines, and twenty percent scattered. That that's just the current landscape of the marketplace. It's not necessarily by design, um, but they they really come from all over. They could be people that used to work for an agency. They could be uh, someone who has worked for different Amazon sellers or wanted to get away from the nine five and opened up their own freelancing business. They could be mini agencies that are looking for more clients. They could be someone who's used the other platforms and didn't want to compete with 50 people for every single job posting and wanted to spend more time focusing on work and clients and building relationships. So they really come in all shapes and sizes and with all different backgrounds. That's, that's pretty fascinating. So it just kind of has naturally worked its way out as uh since there's better quality client or better quality freelancers, you get better quality clients, which makes it easier to get better quality freelancers. Yeah. I mean, we know that we're only as good as the freelancers on the platform. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of different places that freelancers can go. There's no shortage of marketplaces, agencies, virtual assistant companies. And we know that if we don't keep the freelancers happy, they can go somewhere else. So we've never lost sight of that. We, we want to build a culture where the freelancers want, want to be here. They want to grow. They want to be part of our community. They want to build their freelance business. And we try to get like-minded people that care about their clients and have a great attitude and want to build great relationships. So it, it's been a lot of fun, not just getting to know clients and talking on podcasts and conferences, but also traveling to the Philippines and running a conference there and meeting people that are using their, their freelance business to provide for their family and buy their houses and their cars. And 
even even traveling in the U.S., I, I've met up with freelancers and have had freelancers that have come to Orlando where I live, and, and I've met up with them and and heard their stories. And everyone ha, everyone has a different reason for freelancing, but it, a lot of times it comes down to the freedom. I apologize for the Facebook. I don't know how many tabs I have open, but there we go. I think that's the last one. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. I, I couldn't even hear it come through. So with the yeah, that's pretty fascinating. Just I, I think that. Sometimes freelancers feel like they are almost second-class citizens on the marketplace, right? You know, they they have to deal with the marketplace because they have all the distribution. You go on Upwork, and I mean, you know, not trying to bash Upwork, but it's just a difficult place for a freelancer. Um, and it sounds like you guys have really put the freelancers' well-being up pretty high, so you can keep those high-level folks on the platform. Yeah, I mean, my support team, one thing that I just preached to them is we're there to support the freelancers as much as we're there to support the clients. We're we're really trying to help them and benefit them as much as we can and assist them. So it, it's very much the marketplace where the clients are on one side, the freelancer on the other, and we're in the middle trying to make sure everyone's happy, everyone's treated fairly, everyone's protected, and everyone has a good experience and wants to stay part of the community. So I'm always curious about marketplaces that, you know, sell so their aggregation, you know, based businesses, you know, you guys are aggregating freelancers, you're aggregating clients, and then you're connecting the two. So when you were building it, did you build the demand side first, you know, like the clients, or did you build the supply side first? Or how did how did uh, FreeUp kind of come into existence? And what, it, you know, what does it look like building that business? Because I, I don't remember where you were at scale wise, but you've had some pretty significant growth, if I recall. Yeah, we, we did about a million dollars in the first year, five million last year. We should finish this year over nine. So it's wow. been a lot of fun. Um, I started it with a few thousand dollars three years ago. And, and yeah, I mean, I kind of had an advantage because I was an Amazon seller. I had these Amazon virtual assistants and freelancers. I, I built up my Rolodex, so to speak. So when I had the idea of this marketplace, I had all these people, all these connections that I could go to, even if they weren't necessarily my quote unquote freelancers. I, I knew them, I could trust them, I could rely on them. And as we started to build the concept and launched with the minimum viable product, we had freelancers that we could turn to to meet that demand. And once it starts becoming known that, hey, we've got great clients, I mean, then it becomes a little bit easier because you attract all the freelancers. And same thing on the client side. Once people know that you're going to take good care of them and that we got their back and we're helping them grow their business, it starts to spread on that side as well. So you already had the supply side kind of done just based on your previous business. And then it was like, well, hey, I can connect this with the demand side and get clients for these folks uh, and then have a transaction. What's the transaction fee like or what's the uh, cost to freelancers and clients on the platform? Yeah, so it's free to sign up. There's no monthly fee, no minimums, no obligation. You can stop using us at any time. Um, we take 15% with the $2 minimum per hour and 15% on fixed prices. Okay, got it. So then the, you know, if we were sticking with the freelancer side, you probably have your finger on the pulse of what, uh, what is hot in freelancing right now. So where do you see a lot of demand in e-commerce freelancing these days? So I think one thing, when we first started, we were much, we're very Amazon centered, right? I mean, Amazon is the core of e-commerce and it's been kind of cool for me to see all these sellers that we've helped, now they're focused on building their own brand. They're mm. either getting off Amazon. They're driving traffic to their Shopify store. And, and don't get me wrong, Amazon's still a large part of, of most of their businesses. But I think that they're thinking a lot more long-term. And I think that makes it more fun for me and for the freelancers as well, just seeing people that are really growing a, a long-term sustainable business rather than just Amazon where we both know anything can happen at any given time yeah. and you're, you're very reliant on them. So I think that's the trend. And I think people are starting to wake up and see that as a long-term goal where before it was just, hey, how can I increase my sales on Amazon? Yeah, I've, I've really been looking for a, another business to buy. And uh, at the beginning, I was super interested in FBA businesses and I still think they can be great businesses. But just you know, looking at allocating capital, it's hard to buy something that has a five-year payback period or even a three-year payback period when you go, what if Amazon changes something major? What if they decide to come into your category? Uh, you don't own the customer data, right? So it's just a hard, it's a great platform, um, but there's just a lot of risk there. There's a lot of you know distributed variability that could pop up later. 
Yeah, but the cool thing is there's so many avenues out there to start an email marketing campaign, start doing many chats, start running Facebook ads and start collecting your own customers' data to support Amazon and and even getting on other channels like eBay, like Walmart. There, there's just so many different opportunities emerging that you don't have to just be relying on Amazon and you don't need some huge budget to do it anymore. Yeah, absolutely right. We had somebody from um, walmart.com on a couple of weeks ago. It's just amazing stuff what Walmart's doing, uh, really growing out and doubling down on the e-commerce space. I, I think that, you know, obviously Amazon is the biggest player in that pure play e-commerce space, but Walmart's giving them a run for their money. They're really stepping up their game. <laughs> I actually just bought a bunch of Walmart stock, so I completely agree <laughs> with you. <laughs> so now this is, I always like to start from scratch questions, you know. Let's uh, stick with that freelancer mindset. If you were starting from scratch and you were you're going to go into uh, to freelancing, let's say you had some experience with e-commerce, uh, what kind of freelancing services would you offer? Ooh, great question. I mean, e-commerce is not going anywhere. The, the freelancers that can write listings, that can do the SEO, that understand different components, whether it's inventory management or PPC, there's always a demand for that. I mean, every e-commerce seller in the world could use a freelancer in their back pocket that can help them with those day-to-day parts of their business. If I'm looking a little bit more big picture or higher level or maybe even higher paying, it's got to be the external traffic. If you're someone that can, that can take a client to the next level with Facebook ads, with Google ads, with email marketing, with different sequences that have maybe taken courses from the top players out there and understand what works and what doesn't, again, there's just always a need for that. There, there, It works across many different industries, no matter what types of products that you sell. And it even spreads into the, the service industry business where we have clients that are business coaches or they offer a, a PPC service or, or whatever it is that can use those types of freelancers as well. So those are, those are kind of two maybe more general um, things that I've just seen have a lot of success. But the basics, the, the graphic designers, the bookkeepers, the, the content writers aren't going anywhere either. Yeah, that makes sense. I, th- I think you have like a really high success or expected success rate if you are a content writer. You know, content is just exploding and I think it's going to continue. Um, but then the, if you can drive sales to the business or you can increase revenue, uh, that's going to be a huge, huge kind of uh, skill set to have. So inside the marketplace, you you talk about getting the top 1% of freelancers. Let's just imagine that we're hiring on any marketplace. What really is going to show you that somebody is in the top 1%? So a long time ago when I was hiring people, I, I did what a lot of entrepreneurs do. You look at their resume, you look at their references, you see, hey, this person has a lot of skills and you hire them and it doesn't work out. It blows up in your face. And you're like, why did that happen? They, they, they had this awesome resume. And if I can't trust someone with a great resume, who am I going to trust? Right? So what we realized is the skill is just one component of it. The attitude and the communication are the other two. So with skill, you're not necessarily looking for a 10 out of 10 for everything. And a lot of businesses can't afford a 10 out of 10 for everything. There's mm. people that are, are three out of 10s, five out of 10s, 10 out of 10s when it comes to skill. What you care about as a business owner is, is this person honest about what they can and cannot do? And and what we tell the freelancers is one of the fastest ways to get kicked off our platform is to take projects that you can't do at a high level. We're, we're not a marketplace to experiment on our clients. So with skill, you, you really have to be able to identify whether they can do something at a high level. And from the freelancer side, making sure that they're being honest about what they can and cannot do. Because if I'm a client and someone's like, hey, I'm really good at this and I'm just okay at that, at least I know going in, if I put them doing that thing that they're okay, that they told me ahead of time, I can't hold that against them. But if someone tells me, hey, I'm great at something and they don't deliver, I'm probably not going to work with that person again. So mm. that skill, attitude, We've all worked with someone who's a cancer, right? Who is negative every day. They're, they're just in it for the paycheck. The, the second that something doesn't go their way, they get aggressive. Those are the type of people that we don't want. We want the people that are passionate about what they do. That if I hate bookkeeping and I hire a bookkeeper, they need to love bookkeeping as much as I love being an entrepreneur. Those are the type of people that we look for for the platform. And then communication's everything, right? If you... It doesn't matter what your attitude is, what your skill is. If you and I can't communicate at a very high level, 
it's not going to work out. And communication is tough, even if you're sitting right next to someone, never mind across the world. So we have 15 pages of communication best practices that, that I wrote myself, actually, when I was stuck in an airport for 48 hours, <laughs> um, based on my own communication um, issues that I've had in the future, in the past. So th- we have them memorized and get tested on those. And again, very quick ways to get kicked off our platform is poor attitude or lack of communication. And, and it's stuff like responding within a business day, being able to hit estimates and due dates and how to handle emergencies that we all have, um, stuff like that. So I encourage people out there to look for the full picture, not just the skill and the resume, but also the attitude and the communication as well. Well, so you bring up something great with the skill component, um, you know, and how some people are just downright deceptive about the skills they do or don't have, or, or they overrepresent or you know, there's sometimes where there's, it's hard to guarantee something. You can be a, a good traffic. So I've built a lot of sales funnels, um, but all the sales funnels I built still don't work necessarily, right? Like I can't tell you what product's going to sell or what product's not going to sell. Um, so how have you found good ways to vet skills? Yeah, it's a great point. And I'll tell clients that. I mean, even the best Facebook ad person in the world, it doesn't mean they can sell every single product in the world. That's just not the the area that we live in. So, I mean, with skill, we hired experts to help us come up with skilled questions. If they're an Amazon expert, we have a lot of Amazon questions that we try to keep up to date with what Amazon is doing and changing. If they're a graphic designer, we can look at their portfolio. And, and there's also that just testing, hey, when you get on the platform and you take your first client, what is that experience going to be like? Um, because we don't want to continue giving people clients if they're not having a good experience. And and you can also see how long someone's been on the platform. And, and people that have been on the platform longer tend to charge more. And people that ha- haven't, you're taking a little bit more risk as a client, but you're also um, usually getting a cheaper price. So there's an element of testing before, and then there's an element of maintaining that throughout um, and making sure that people are continuing to provide great service to clients. That sounds pretty genius. I really like that idea of bringing in experts and just saying like, hey, what, you know, how would you, person who is an expert in this field, because nobody can be an expert everywhere. I'm sure you're um, way above average with Amazon stuff since you just have such ex- so much experience, but uh, you, know, you can't know everything. Yeah. I mean, when we started, it it was fairly easy for us to come up with Amazon questions, right? (laughs) But once you branch into the Facebook ads and the email marketing and all these different components, you you get out of your core competency and you do have to hire external help. And if there's one thing that hiring has taught me is surround yourself by really smart people. And I mean, I could spend the next six months and learn how to be a Facebook ad guru, but that's not a very good use of my time. I'd much rather hire an expert to come in and, and do it right from the beginning or to create the test right from the beginning. Yeah, that makes total sense. So then, um, you know, for a freelancer that wants to, I don't know the best way to get it, but there's there's kind of the cycle of experience that's difficult, right? Let's imagine that, um, you know, you're a freelancer that has a lot of experience on Amazon and you want to you wanna switch platforms. And maybe even like you've done a whole bunch of Amazon PPC and pretty successfully. You want to switch platforms to, uh, say, YouTube ads or something. Is, it, is there any way that you can do performance guarantees on your platform where you just say, hey, I remember when I got my first client, shucks, it was probably 10 years ago, that I just did, we said, let's put the money in escrow. Um, and if this sales funnel doesn't beat your competitor sales funnel, then you don't pay anything. But I knew they were serious because the money was in escrow and they knew I was serious because I was willing to you know, put my money where the mouth, my mouth was. Yeah. At the end of the day, these are the freelancers' businesses. We don't tell them how to run or how not to run their business. Now, we can give suggestions and feedback and best practices and try to help them. Um, But there are certain aspects that if freelancers and clients, they want to take that risk, that they're more than welcome to do it. At the same time, one of the reasons that we discourage that is, let's say that you, you set up an escrow and it's dependent on profit margins, depending on amount of sales. Am I, as the owner of FreeUp, going to go into the client's business and prove what and try to prove whether yeah. it happened or didn't happen? No. So we kind of treat that as, hey, if you're going to do that, you're doing it at your own risk. And we almost treat it like a bonus where it's not guaranteed. And if the client approves and, and gives a bonus, then it goes through. And, and if not, we can't be expected to dive into the client's business and say, oh, you did hit this margin or you didn't. It's just not realistic. So for the yeah. most part, because of that, we encourage fixed price and hourly that don't really go by that don't go by results and are more dependent on the project or the hours. 
That makes sense. I, I mean, you could have a full-time business on your hands just auditing results, you know, if, uh, if it was all kind of performance-based agreements. Exactly. I, I think that there is just so much trust that goes into uh, anything that has to do with performance. Even if you get a big fixed fee, you know, sometimes I, I think if it's going to be a longer-term partnership, it's just built over time. And there's so many variables that you can't, it's almost impossible to get every single variable into a contract. It's, hey, mm-hmm. what, what if you hit all these things, but then something came up that you were, that wasn't expected that makes it all obsolete or Amazon suspends you halfway through. And there's just like <laughs> so many things that you can't possibly cover that a lot of times it'll turn into a he said, she said down the line and yeah. that's not good for anyone. Yep. That makes sense. So you mentioned that you're seeing a lot of folks uh, come off of Amazon and will not come off of Amazon, augment their Amazon presence with, say, Shopify or, I don't know, BigCommerce or WooCommerce, whatever platform they're getting on, Walmart.com, another marketplace. Um, so, you know, what kinds of things for people who are looking at, at investing in a service like this, what are, what are you seeing the project prices being for, let's say, coming from Amazon, setting up a Shopify store or you know, coming from Amazon and uh, getting onto walmart.com or something like that? It's a great question. You're probably not going to love my answer, but (laughs) the, so I almost stay as far away from the estimate game as humanly possible. I mean, the, the freelancers set their own estimates. There, there's so many factors that, that go involved, that go into it. And usually freelancers will have lots of different questions on what the client wants or doesn't want. And there'll be different options, ABC. This is the, the biggest one, the most expensive, medium, lowest, bare minimum. Um, and then you also just got price points. You've got people in the Philippines where the cost of living is a lot smaller. And then you've got people in the US who are top of the line and they know they're top of the line and you're paying a premium. You're you're really paying for the value more than you're even paying for their time and and everything in between. So it, it, whenever I had a client right before you call and they said, hey, how much for an Amazon listing? And my answer um, is more in line with, with what type of freelancer you're getting than, than how much the project is going to cost. I, I like to tell people that there's three different types of, of freelancers. There's basic, mid, and expert. So a basic level freelancer five to 10 bucks an hour, non-US, they, they have years of experience because we're not a marketplace for newbies, but they're followers. They're for there to follow your system, your process. At the end of the day, if, if you don't have those systems and processes, you're, you're going to really struggle hiring those basic level freelancers. The mid-level people are more doers, graphic designers, bookkeepers, content writers. You're not teaching someone how to be a graphic designer, but they're not consulting with you either. They're doers. And then you got the experts, the 25 and up that can consult, project manage, execute high-level game plans, help you create systems and processes. So a lot of times as a business owner, you need to figure out, hey, do I need that follower? Do I need that doer? Do I need that expert? And then that will determine the cost of the project. Things are obviously cheaper when you have the directions in the system opposed to, hey, I, I need advice or I'm entering a space. I need to get on Walmart and I know nothing about Walmart, you know? That makes sense. And I, and I think that it's fair uh, because there's just so many variables that would go into project specking. But all of us can probably look at it and go, yeah, I need, I need an expert for this. I don't know anything about it. Or I know everything about it. I just need somebody to implement the process I've already come up with. Exactly. And you get businesses with all shapes and sizes and you get people selling in different different products in different categories and different com- competition, different times of the year. There's so much that goes into different things. So for, you know, the, the free up marketplace, um, what's a, how do you write a good job description for free up or, or really any freelance marketplace? How do you, um, what does it look like to spec a good job or do you have any kind of rules of thumb that you suggest clients follow to make sure that they're telling the freelancer, because I, I know, you know, a good freelancer is going to be turned off if there's someone who has unrealistic expectations um, or just doesn't know what they want, right? It's just a headache waiting to happen. Yeah, great question. So the first thing is titles don't matter. It doesn't matter what you call the job, what you call the position. If you put virtual assistant, we're not going to look at, hey, you call it virtual assistant because that could mean anything. We're going to look at the, the actual details of the job. 
Next, I would say that the different levels I just mentioned, are you looking for the, the follower, the doer, the expert? And then what constitutes success and what constitutes failure? Because what a lot of clients don't realize is freelancers work with a lot of different clients. They, they're building up their Rolodex, just like you're building up yours. And what's good for one client might not be good for another. And I think that's where a lot of people go wrong is they just assume. They assume that everyone writes listings this way or, or this is how we're going to run a campaign or, or all these different things that you really have to define. Hey, we're looking for someone that can do it in X amount of time with X amount of results with that has this type of experience that, has, that works in this type of environment and really defining. Um, I guess the only last thing is information about your business because freelancers, good freelancers, know what where they can thrive and where they can't. And if you put information about your business, they'll be able to decide, hey, I'm going to be a good fit for this person because I have relevant experience. I've worked with similar clients before. Or, hey, this, this might be similar to what I do, but it's brand new territory and I might let someone else grab that ticket. Mm, that makes sense. So then flipping it, you know, if you're a freelancer that's applying for it or you're a small agency or whatever, then um, how... How do you maximize your chances of winning a project other than just say cutting your price or something? How do you, yeah. So the first thing is good introductions. So introductions that actually say why you're a good fit for that particular project, not just a generic, hey, um, hey, this is me, you know, where they just list out a hundred skill sets that may or may <laughs> not have anything to do with, with what the project is. Um, any, any kind of samples, backgrounds, we just added a, a portfolio feature to the marketplace a few months ago. So you can really design that and customize it. So clients, clients can look at it quickly. I mean, we live in the area of short attention spans. So you really have to capture people's interests fast and show why you're fit, what your value is, how long you've been freelancing, all that stuff. And, and then th that 10 to 15 minute meeting where you're almost auditing the client. I mean, that's what good freelancers do. They're not only trying to impress the client and show why they're a good fit, they're trying to make sure that the client is a good fit for them. And they're asking questions to get that information that wasn't on the job posting. Yeah, that's a great point because I think if you're desperate for work and you're saying yes to everything, uh, it's really easy to take clients that just aren't going to be be simple to succeed with either people that have unrealistic expectations or they just don't have a fundamental component that you know you can help uh so that that audit does seem like it'd be pretty critical yeah absolutely i mean we again we have a lot of best practices we don't tell people how to run their business but that, that 10 to 15 minute interview we've got different content on that to help the freelancers and guide them because everyone's getting better business owners i mean no one taught me how to sell on amazon no one taught me how to run a freelancer marketplace and and there are people out there that teach freelancing but they're not going to teach every single client in every situation so if you're if you're open to learning and growing and, and getting different advice we have a lot of content out there that, that can help you and lead to a better experience for for the client and the freelancer now speaking of advice have you guys written a book or have you um, come up with any content repository for a lot of these tips yeah so we have a book called free up your business secrets to bootstrapping multi-million dollar companies um, and then yeah we have a lot of ebooks so the 10 common most mistakes of outsourcing um, the 100 things to outsource I, think, I don't think that's the right name, but it's 100 things to hire for online or something like that. Um, and yeah, we post. All, we have a free up blog. We have a free up YouTube channel. We're always posting lots of content to help people hire, to help people freelance and grow their freelance business. And it's definitely something we're passionate about. It's been cool to help a lot of people just from sharing our own experience. And I guess off of that, I try, I try to avoid the, hey, this is this is how we do it. So it must be right. And if you follow mm. it, you'll have success. Um, it, it bothers me when, when people tend to do that. It's more like, hey, this is what's worked for me. This is what I've learned. And hopefully you can figure out parts of these, uh, the parts of what I'm saying that can apply to you that can help your business in some way. Uh, that's just such a great point, because I think that <laughs> we all want there to be some cookie cutter recipe, right? or I don't know if everybody else wants it, but I know I do where every time I start something new, my big temptation is buying a lot of courses. I'm like, oh, I need to just buy the course because this guru promises. Um, and I mean, I've sold some stuff online, right? It's not even the first time I've sold online. And it's just a temptation to want that certainty. Um, it just doesn't exist. There's no certainty in any project or any client or any business. 
there are some things that have worked for others that you know maybe you can you can work together on or you can take something that they learned and uh and really use that to your advantage but that's a beautiful point yeah and whether this is right or wrong i'm i'm almost the opposite i i i part of the fun for being an entrepreneur for me is figuring it out for myself. And I, I've only bought one course ever. And that was a, a guest speaking um, course for speaking at conferences, just because I had never done it before. And I had booked a, a speaking engagement that was probably <laughs> way over my head. Um, but for me, that that's like the fun is figuring it out. And once you start copying other people, once, like once everyone got into Amazon, that's when I stopped finding Amazon fun. And I wanted to go out and build a marketplace. And there wasn't someone telling me how to um, build a marketplace. But with that said, that there's plenty of people out there that are way more successful than I am that have taken lots of courses and learned from the gurus. So who am I to say otherwise? But for me, it's a lot more fun to kind of figure it out for yourself and do that trial and error approach. Well, one of the rules that I've started trying to put in place for myself as well is just trying, you know, think about how much money you'd spend. Like, we'll just take a $2,000 course, right? You spend $2,000 on a course how much more useful data, like you're still at square one when you, you take the course, but how much more useful data could you have bought? And maybe that's like, hey, I did 20 experiments of 100 bucks each with uh, Facebook ads or YouTube ads or whatever. Or, um, and we'll just even take like a fr- as a freelancer, you're trying to improve your skills. If you spent two grand promoting an affiliate product, uh, you probably got something like, you know, enough experiments, you probably got something to show a potential client. Versus if you took a YouTube course, like, I don't know, the, I don't really put a whole lot of stock in certifications when I'm hiring, um, with the exception of maybe like, if it, you're a Microsoft systems analyst, and I'm hiring you to run a server. But uh, it's, I think you're absolutely right that taking a swing and trying to figure out uh, can be great. If you don't have if you're at square one, and if you're trying to get better at the thing you're already doing, that's where like some education, you booked the speaking gig and then took the course. You didn't take the course to then try to book the speaking gig. Yeah. And I'm sure there's plenty of exceptions. And we work with and partner with a lot of coaches that have students that have been really successful that probably couldn't have done it without them. It's more of a, a personal thing on my end, part of part of just that fun of being an entrepreneur and focusing on a lot of low risk, high reward situations where, hey, I, I hire someone to run my Instagram and see how that works out and, and tweak around with Facebook ads and with YouTube videos. And, and cert- some things work and you put more money and more time into them and others don't and you pull back and you might revisit them later. And, and part of that just kind of gets the brain flowing. And that's what's fun about being an entrepreneur. Yeah, I, I feel like it's, um, <laughs> have you heard the phrase about how there's gamblers in the stock market, and then there's investors in gambling, right? Like, I, I know a professional poker player, who is very methodical, like the guy could tell you how much money he's going to earn in a year based off how many hands he plays. And <laughs> you know, you've met like investors where it's like your friend's dad or your brother in law or whatever, who the guy's gambling in the stock market, right? He's totally, yep. he has no idea what he's doing. And I think as an entrepreneur, we've got, we got the real fun of uh, win-win gambling, right? It's, it's not gambling, but you're, you're taking a bet. You're saying, hey, I think there's a, a high chance this is going to pay off, or at least the expected value is high enough that it's worth doing. Um, and then you're providing value for somebody, and you're also going to hopefully make some money yourself. So it's a, it's a cool way to think of it. Yeah. And we live in a time where you don't need $500,000 to start your business. I mean, when when else in the past 200 years has that been the case where you can start a business with $1,000 or less in some situations and be able to take such small risks that if you mess up, you're you're not jeopardizing your house or your future. So um, I definitely encourage people to experiment a little bit, even if you're following the the status quo. That's a a really fascinating point too, because you know, we don't need investors. We don't need, uh, for any new venture that you're starting, you, you don't have to have huge startup capital unless you're, I don't know, uh, trying to buy a factory or something that has real high capital expenditures. But that's, that's, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I was looking through and um, one of the, the topics on your blog really got me thinking, there's a lot going on with chatbots and messenger marketing right now. I, you know, any kind of noise that you guys have seen coming across that seems like it, it could be a little bit of signal in there that uh, you see it as a, a big uh, area of opportunity or what are you all seeing in the chatbot messenger marketing space? 
Yeah, we kind of look at it as fads, not necessarily that they're going to end, but what's popular now. I mean, when we started free up, we started three years ago. So about a year, year and a half in Facebook ads just started to take off before that. No one was really running Facebook ads to to their product or service. And and now we've kind of see that the next level where it's the the many chats and getting higher open rates. And we've seen a lot of clients succeed with that. And we've seen more freelancers that have taken courses or, or perfected that skill and are offering it on the platform. So for, for me, it, it's kind of tough to, to be like, hey, we, we've seen like X amount of success with these clients because the, the work is between the client and the freelancer. So I'm not necessarily involved in the, the actual numbers and the data, but we've definitely seen more requests for it. We've seen clients that have gotten better results for it, that seem happier, that keep coming back or that hire a, a monthly service. And we've definitely seen a, a more, more freelancer applications with that type of experience. That makes sense. So and that's, that's got to be fascinating to look at some of the data and see like this thing was hot or it was a fad. Uh, we'll just take direct mail, right? Direct mail is so dead that I wouldn't be surprised if there's a resurgence. There's a guy named Brian Kurtz who was, um, I think he was president of Boardroom or he, he ran Boardroom for a good while and sent millions and millions of pieces of direct mail. And it's like, guys, direct mail never went anywhere. But the popularity of direct mail really, um, or, you know, People stopped making so much noise about direct mail and said, oh, direct mail's dead. Long, you know, here's this new thing. So what you, you'd say mini chat's kind of the fad right now, or what what's kind of the fad, whether it's effective or not, you know, you probably can't speak to, but what's are the really popular things on the platform? Yeah, I would say many chat. I would say just content. We we talked a little bit about just just nonstop content every day, every week. You have to be putting out new content. If you don't have a, a writer or two in your Rolodex, you're you're missing out to your competition. I, I feel like that's at an all time high. Um, running the the Facebook ads, and I would even say Google ads making a comeback only because it's just been so heavy on the Facebook side, and and now Facebook has kind of started to crack down and, and tweak their rules, making it not as easy as it was before, and, and and having to come out with new content pretty consistently. We've kind of seen that resurgence into Google ads and, and even YouTube ads and Instagram ads. Um, and just be, following the line of building your brand, we've seen more clients that are heavily focused on, on their Twitter and their Instagram and, and getting started on that early, building that following and, and providing lots of different ways for people to connect. I've also seen LinkedIn. I, I have a LinkedIn lead generation team that's been awesome. And I've, I've told clients when, I, when I've met them at conferences, you got to try it because it's just so cheap. It's so affordable to hire a Filipino or a, a, assistant, a virtual assistant in the Philippines to do lead generation a few hours a day on LinkedIn and make awesome connections and, and network and, and really grow your um, your database of people that, you, you, that are potential clients for you. And you can run funnels that go from LinkedIn to your Facebook group that go from LinkedIn to your email list, whatever it is. So there's a lot of different creative ways in all these different social media channels where as before, I feel like Amazon was really, or not Amazon, Facebook was really dominating. That's fascinating with LinkedIn. So we do a little bit of LinkedIn uh, and our funnel is pretty much like connecting and then sending some messages uh, and seeing if they want to hop on a call. But what, uh, what kind of funnels are you seeing that are effective on LinkedIn? And you're talking about getting clients on to free up, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So for us, our funnel is really to get people on the phone with me or my business partner, whether it's a partnership or a client. And again, we don't have some huge package we're selling. We don't have a $3,000 product. It's either people are looking to hire or they're not. So (laughs) it's really getting them on the phone and getting them part of our community and and part of our network. But I have clients that will run a Facebook group. And and one of the prime ways that they're getting people into that group is through the LinkedIn messaging. And they'll connect with someone and say, hey, I saw you're in real estate, join my real estate group. And then from there, they're, they're posting content into the group and, and upselling them on courses or getting them on their email list. So I, I kind of thought, learned that recently that they, people are almost using LinkedIn as another part of the, of the top of their funnel. That's beautiful. And so is it like um, you have a freelancer in the Philippines and you say, hey, I'd like you do, are they using like the client's profile or are they using, you know, this is uh, Jane in the Philippines, and she sets up on her profile that she works for uh, Scale XL or whatever, and then contacts the people and just says, "You might want to check out this group." Or what is what does that whole thing look like? 
so on my side, I have someone that uses my LinkedIn and will shoot different messages to um, different potential people. And then once someone responds, I take it over from there. But then I also have someone on my freelancer success team, which is our recruiting team for freelancers that will reach out to different freelancer communities. And, and they're not pretending to be me. They're reaching out on behalf of FreeUp. Um, for other clients, they, they they all do it somewhat differently. Some people will hire a, a content writer to come up with different sales pitches or, or different messages, and, and they'll be the one to message themselves. Other people will have an assistant that's going through and, um, and, and sending the messages every day, or they might have people, a whole team of people on behalf of the company that are, are reaching out to different communities, different networks, um, whether some people going after Amazon sellers, some people after Shopify. So you, you kind of have that creativity and flexibility. And, and just like any Anything else? There, there's no right or wrong, and what works for one business might not work for another. So you're going to have to do some trial and error and experimenting. And I know for my current LinkedIn system, it, it probably took us a good six months to to come up with what we're doing now, which has been the most effective. And, and we tried a lot of different things that other people had said worked, and for whatever reason, it, it didn't necessarily see the best result for our business model. So there is a lot of tweaking involved, like any part of sales. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that with split testing as well, you know, where you you have the guaranteed to work. I've never seen this fail split tests. Uh, <laughs> and with the exception of post-purchase upsells, I haven't ever seen post-purchase upsells not increase revenue pretty drastically. Um, it just, it's a crapshoot. You know, the thing that is guaranteed to work might work 50% of the time or 20% of the time. Because um, all markets are different and all products are different and the way you apply it's different. Your traffic source is different. So, there's just so many variables. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I encourage is there's no, there's never a finished product, right? Even the the process that we've come up with right now, we're trying to make it better. We're trying to brainstorm and come up with different ideas. I have a brainstorming session um, with my business partner Connor once a week, where we're we're just kind of going through different teams and hey, I thought of this, or what if we try this? And and once you come up with these ideas, it's all about hey, prioritizing what you, what's realistic to try now. What should we try to get done in the next month, the next three months, and and adjusting on what's working and what. What isn't and what other people are telling us and what we've learned. So looking at that, I mean, you're really talking about iterating in order to find what works best. And what's your process for iteration? It's always, I, I try to think of like, uh, and I heard this guy, Michael Cage, he runs a golf business and he mentioned how he tries to ask the question, what's the minimum amount of data we need to answer this question or test this assumption? So you know, maybe the assumption is we can acquire customers on Facebook for, you know, 10% of, uh, or at a 10% ROI. So we can get a little better than break even. And, you know, the experiment, he thinks we need to try this a hundred times in order to see, but how do you look at iterating? Um, we'll just take that LinkedIn example. You know, how did you kind of approach LinkedIn to say, did you just start and say, we're going to take six months on this? Did you say, all right, let's try it. Let's see what happens in the first two weeks. If that looks good, we can try something else or how did that kind of evolve? Yeah, I would say that's probably one of our weaknesses, just Connor and I working together, is neither of us are hardcore, crazy data heads, <laughs> which might hurt us more than we think. But for us, I mean, we're never doing something for six months and, and then and then changing it, unless it's some big dev project, like integrating payments onto our system was big, but we knew we had to do it. Um, for the most part, we're talking weeks, week trials with small amounts of money, seeing what's working and what didn't or what doesn't. Um, and we do have a lot of clients that are doing probably more intense split testing with a lot of different data. For us, it, it can be hard because we don't necessarily know how to calculate the ROI. I might meet someone at a conference. They might hear me at a podcast. They might hire four people right away. They might wait three months, then hire someone for a two-month two project. So there, there's a lot of start-stop involved. There's no monthly subscription. Where there's no $3,000 package. So I think we've kind of struggled on, on how do we say, oh, this led to X ROI that came from over here. Um, so it, it's been a little bit different and it, it's something we've gotten better at, but we'll probably we'll probably define it more on and on. For us, it's a lot more of asking for feedback from clients, from freelancers pretty consistently, from our internal team, from looking at results, from looking at signups, from looking at requests um, and, and just response rate um, rather than just going over lots and lots of hardcore data. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, I'm no expert at ROI calculations and I don't know what your cash burn rate is, but going from 5 million to 9 million in turnover seems like something's working right? or like to go to one to five to nine. 
Sounds like you guys have hit on something and it's moving forward pretty well. Yeah, th- things are going well. My, I guess my, my point is it, it's tough to be like, oh, we we sponsored a conference for $5,000 and that led to X ROI. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yep, I get it. Yeah, and it's kind of a long sales cycle too, right? Because sometimes somebody might come on and sign up and not have a project right away or they have, you know, I could just see the sales cycle being quite variable uh, when it comes to hiring. Yeah. And you get people that say, Hey, I heard you on four different podcasts and then I signed up six months later. So, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. And I just can see that AOV. So do you find that the um, average value of a client is pretty uh, like the range is pretty wide or is it like, Oh yeah. For every client that signs up, we know we're, we're close to the same amount. No, it, it's very wide. I mean, we, we have clients that do $100 million of sales a year, and we have clients that have never sold anything before and are just getting started in e-commerce and, and everything in between. Yeah, so the needs are going to be quite different. Um, man, now you guys, you said you started it three years ago. You decided to really focus in on it. So that's pretty impressive that you grew to $5 million before it being your sole focus. <laughs> yeah, I mean... If you had asked me years ago whether I'd be selling baby products on Amazon, I probably wouldn't have believed you. And if you asked me years into my Amazon business when we were crushing it, if I'd be running a freelancer marketplace four or five years later, I probably wouldn't have believed you either. It's it's funny how things change. And I think with the, the gurus and the courses, that kind of the Amazon business, it wasn't doubling every year like it was before. And again, we weren't necessarily passionate about selling baby products. We weren't selling our own products. I'm still not passionate about selling baby products. So I think it was a little bit easier that to, to let go of that than maybe if I, if I had my own baby, so to speak, that, that was my <laughs> product. Um, but yeah, I mean, things change. You go in different directions. I mean, I, I didn't love about the Amazon business, the kind of the seclusion. Like it was me, my team, my, mar- my uh, manufacturers, where with FreeUp, I mean, I get to go on podcasts and meet awesome people like you and go to conferences. And I have clients, thousands of clients all over the world that give me an excuse to travel and, and meet up with them and attend different events. So it, it was almost like a no-brainer when it got to that point, even though um, at first it didn't seem that way. Yeah, I, I agree. And some, you know, one of the big reasons I started this podcast was just the isolation part where I like consulting just because I see other problems, right? You can get really focused in like, does it always make the most money for the amount of headache? Not necessarily, but you get to look at interesting problems. You get to see what smart people are doing. Like people don't just stumble into $10 million a year businesses or, you know, 50 million or hundred million dollar year businesses. They're doing something very right. Uh, and you can just see and learn a whole lot from getting a chance to help them with a problem that they don't know how to solve. Yeah, I could not agree more. Well, uh, this 50 minutes has just flown by. Now, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, you mentioned there's it's pretty easy to even book a call. Uh, but you know, if you had a potential freelancer or you had a potential um, client to hire freelancers, what would be the best way to get in touch? Yeah. So if you're a potential freelancer, just apply on the website. Please don't reach out to me. We just get too many applicants um, (laughs) every week. Um, But if you're a potential client or a partner or you're interested in talking, my calendar is right on the website. I'm I'm probably one of the easiest entrepreneurs to contact Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, you name it. Um, And yeah, check out our blog, check out our YouTube channel, check out our Facebook group, the Online Hiring Mastermind. Um, we're, We're constantly trying to put out great content about hiring, whether you use our service or not. Awesome. Well, I think it's been a terrific call. Oh, and I guess, is there anybody in particular that you're, you're trying to partner with that we could just put a shout out on here and maybe if they listen to the episode, they can, they can reach out. Nice. Any, and I also forgot to mention, if you mentioned this podcast, you get a $50 credit to try out free. Boom. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, people in the e-commerce and marketing space, that, that's really our target is marketing agencies, e-com agencies. When you find, I'm sorry, e-com businesses, marketing agencies, when you find e-com agencies, that's kind of a sweet spot. Um, but we work with lots of different clients, whether it's real estate, software, um, you name it. But the whole e-com space and marketing space, that's where we're looking to network and make partnerships. Awesome. All right. Well, Nathan, it's been great having you on the call and uh, just learned a whole lot. Thanks for sharing. And uh, everybody check out Free Up. Don't forget it's three E's, uh, freeup.com. Thanks for having me. And...